0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFace podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 75th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Rebecca Liebman, co-founder and CEO at LearnLux. If you're like most people, figuring out your financial plan and making financial decisions at any age is not easy. It's actually intimidating. There are all these different terms and options that are really difficult to understand. You would think for something that's so incredibly important that there has to be a better way. Well, Rebecca and her brother Michael both recognized this issue, which led them to start LearnLux, a company that brings financial wellness to the workplace as a benefit and helps your employees take control over their personal finances. As you will learn from hearing her story, Rebecca is a master networker and the type of person who is very driven to succeed. Her hard work and determination has been paying off as she has been recognized by Forbes for their 30 under 30 list and LearnLux has raised capital from tier A investors on both coasts. This includes Ashton Kutcher, Guy O'Seary, Mark Benioff, underscore VC, Adam Nash, and others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the interesting ritual that she does every time before speaking in public. All about Rebecca's background and the details behind LearnLux and its business model, advice for founders raising capital, tips for getting media as an early stage company, how she's developed her leadership skills, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you are hiring and looking for an effective way to engage with our targeted audience of professionals in the Boston tech scene, then you might want to consider adding a BizPage subscription for your company. It is an employment branding solution that includes your own company's microsite, job postings, content, and more. If you're interested in hearing the additional details, please send an email to info at All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rebecca. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Of course, thanks for having me. Uh
0: so as I was doing some research preparing for this interview, um I noticed that you have a pretty unique pre-pitch ritual. So let's say if you're going to do a pitch at a, you know, a pitch contest, there's something or maybe you're getting on sp- on stage to speak to somebody or to speak to a crowd. What's uh what is it that you're that you do that's your pre-pitch ritual?
1: Yeah. So I do this all the time even before meetings, before I speak publicly. Um but I put my arms in the air like this. And, um, it's, it's called a power stance. I don't know if that's the, that's the official word. Pretty much you do that for 30 seconds to two minutes and it tricks your brain into thinking that you've already won. And so it's this really interesting study that Amy Cuddy did where she found that humans and animals alike, when they win something, they make that gesture. They put their arms in the air. They make themselves very large. Um, and because you can't Turn nervous energy into calm energy. All you can do is you can turn nervous energy into excited energy, and that's what it replicates. Mm. So it tricks your body into thinking that you've already won in the situation, and um, and makes you excited. So I do that a lot.
0: That is so cool. So I, I since listening, I, I'm like, I need to one watch the TED Talk that Amy Cuddy did, who's you know she's a professor at Harvard Business School and researcher, mm-hmm. and uh, I started doing it. So before this interview, I had my. <laughs> hands in the air for 30 seconds. I'm like, let's do this.
1: Yeah. Which we're yeah. going to talk yeah. about
0: how that actually translated into success and a, and a real life scenario for you in a little bit, but let's go back. Let's talk about your background. Like where'd you grow up? What'd your parents do for work?
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is my least favorite part, but, um, I grew up in suburban Connecticut, really close to the Massachusetts border. Mm-hmm. Um, there was really just houses, schools and a target. It was a very small microcosm of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents had kind of funny jobs. My mom, uh, works at a nursing home okay. and my dad sells toilets. Great. Well, <laughs> there's
0: always demand for
1: that. Exactly. There is always demand.
0: No, so, but you ended up going to school at Clark's studying environmental science. So what was your thinking there? And then obviously, you know, somehow you got into the world of, of FinTech.
1: Yeah. Um, so Clark was, uh, was a really good experience for me. I think it's such a small school that it let me do so many things that you wouldn't be able to do at a large school. Um, kind of just that, you know, the big fish, small pond mentality. So I had been fascinated by environmental science for a long time. I thought I was going to go into environmental policy and I went to Clark because they had six or seven programs just around that topic. Um, whether it was policy or environmental business or just how the environment fits into every aspect of the world, environmental health, biology. Um, And so I studied environmental science and did a ton of work in that space around water projects. Um, And I guess maybe we'll get into the story, but that's kind of actually weirdly what led me to this company. Um, Yeah, but it was a good... It was a really good experience for me, I think. And it was so close to Boston that when I started the company in school, I would commute to Boston all the time for meetings and to go to events. So it was, it was a nice distance.
0: Well, let's talk about, you know, Lauren Lux, like cause you started the, the company actually while you were in college, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was the aha moment that led you down the path of actually starting a company at Clark?
1: Yeah. So it was a, it was a lot of interesting things. So one, because I was studying environmental science I had this really interesting opportunity to move to Kenya on a research grant to study environmental initiatives. And when I got to Kenya, I was 19 and it was the dry season. So there was barely any water. And I was in rural Kenya. So there's no running water, no electricity. You're walking a mile or three miles to get water in the morning. Um, I was living with a host family and it was just, it was a, life-changing experience because I was outside of this little microcosm of new England. And I actually was able to see that the world is very different than what you're taught, right? It's just, it's so different. Mm -hmm. It changed my perspective on everything. And, um, while I was living in Kenya, I was also kind of teaching English on the side just because I really liked it. And I got to meet a lot of students and, uh, There was this really fascinating technology that took off while I was there called M-Pesa. This was about seven or eight years ago. M-Pesa is mobile money, so you use your phone to pay for everything. And M-Pesa was taking off. And within the first year, I was like, this is fascinating. I ended up starting a company around mobile payments using M-Pesa, but for a new use case in education that I realized by spending my extra time in the school system. Um, And that's where I became interested in finance because Kenya doesn't have a stable banking infrastructure. There were so many financial technologies that worked in Kenya that never work in the States, just out of necessity, they work. Um, And so that's really what led me into finance. And I thought, wow, finance can really be used for good and to create more access. And when I came back to the States, I started working at a lab at MIT. And I was looking at a lot of trends and tendencies in financial services. And I just kept seeing how archaic the industry was and how the data that incumbent banks are using is so outdated. Um, and the cherry on top was that the 10 PhDs in my lab couldn't figure out how to open a retirement account. And I thought, how funny is this that the smartest people I know can't figure out how to open a retirement account and every American is supposed to be doing this no matter their education level. Um, and that's really what led me to learn Lux along with my brother's story, which is you know quite fascinating in itself as well, working in finance at such a young age.
0: Well, so just to expand on that, so your brother was actually, getting like, in high school, he's working at a bank yeah. as a teller, right?
1: Yeah. He So, I mean, Michael has just always been uh, very interested in money and finance and how economics works, and he got hired to work at a bank when he was 15, and even as the youngest bank teller, his managers who were older than him would always ask him for help with their finances and to help with their 401k and their, uh, their retirement plans. And he would also help the the PhDs at my lab. And so it was just kind of this funny combination of seeing so many different environments of intelligent people, but the inability to make financial decisions or understand what's going on.
0: I mean, it is, it's, it's a world that, you know, um, you you learn as you get older, but it's, it's still intimidating. Like still, even today, some of the things I'm like, what what does that mean? Right. So, so so what does Lauren Lux do?
1: Yeah. So it's a, it's a perfect uh, segue, I think finance is extremely intimidating. Our entire lives were treated like we should know finance, but there's never actually a point when you learn. Um, you inherit a lot of behaviors and tendencies from your parents and how you grew up, but you're never really taught exactly how to think through a financial decision. And so our goal was was really to do that, to help you make the best financial decision for you proactively instead of waiting until it's too late, 3, 13, 30 years too late, and you're making a decision reactively. Um, So what that looks like now is we help people learn personal finance skills through online interactive learning tools and connect them with the resources they need. Um, And it's a lot of decisions around retirement, insurance, healthcare, credit, investing, just all those huge, ugly decisions that everyone has to make. It's ubiquitous. Taxes. Um, but right now it's just not a positive experience and we really try to make it a seamless, positive experience.
0: Yeah. Cause to date, it's not like something that's fun and easy to learn, right? You got to, exactly. you know, typically you get a financial advisor that's referred to you maybe through, you know, like you said, your parents or
1: like your you know, brother-in-law's sister's yeah, friend. Like, I feel got like a I'm guy happy.
0: type of thing, I, you know, and you're like, okay. And like you go meet and you just like talk about this subject where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to make it more engaging and. Down to earth, simple terms is just, I think, uh, incredibly helpful for regardless of age. 100%. How did you get the the business going? Like you started it while you were in college, um, and you actually raised money initially through um, you know uh, rough draft ventures and dorm room fund, which are the you know the the, the mm-hmm. funds that you know you have students. Well, they're backed by general catalyst and and uh, first round capital, but you have these students that are on campuses, but they're not at Clark. So how did you get involved in raising capital from from those two? <laughs>
1: It's actually funny. I think when I pitched both of them, they were like, how did you end up here? Because it's mostly Harvard and MIT students who pitch right. them. They definitely don't have people scouting at Clark. Um, I think that's been probably the theme of this entire company is that I always find a way to get to people um, when I want to meet them. But uh, because I had spent so much time in Boston, again, like commuting to Boston while I was in school, I would go to events and I, I met people um, who worked at, both of the funds are at Dormer Fund, at rough draft and connected with them that way. Um, and then somehow got myself a couple meetings with them. And I think it was at the time it was, um, extremely validating because we started off by going after millennials. And so to have millennials as investors was exciting to say, Hey, people realize this is a problem. These people want to use it. Um, it was definitely a great starting point for us.
0: And now what what's the business model now like like how does your company actually you know keep the lights on as far as business model
1: Yeah so what we do now is we sell into employers to help their employees make all of their financial decisions around benefits retirement healthcare insurance even stock options um like we mentioned we were uh we started as direct to consumer when I started the company out of the lab at MIT we were initially going direct to consumer we learned a ton And we actually did pretty well direct to consumer because we ended up on the front page of the New York times right before we launched. (laughs) And so it kind of all that press syndicated and it it ended up doing really well. The thing was, I didn't like the way that you could monetize consumer. I didn't want to do ads or affiliate. And so I knew that we were going to have to do some type of B2B to C model where it was more aligned. And that's really where this, um, this model came in and this, this is where we're starting kind of at work, but, there's a lot of interesting, um, places that are, that are buying this for their organization or their employees or their customers. So it's, it's a great starting point. And I really like the aligned revenue model.
0: Now you just, uh, recently announced, um, you know, your next round of funding. So that was uh, $2 million, but you know, those same investors that, you know, contributed to that round were your investors from actually winning a, a South by Southwest, uh, pitch competition that was hosted by sound ventures, right. Which is ashton kuchner and guy O'Siri's venture fund and then mark benioff was a judge plus others like gary Vee and so many other celebrity investor types so like like how did you get involved in this pitch competition and like what was it about your story that not only did they write you a check that day but they doubled down on what the initial amount was going to be so what was so like do you think was so convincing that day that they're like wait we're doubling down on on this idea
1: yeah, I think, so one, there was a lot of prep before that pitch competition that they did. They went through a lot of applications. They, uh, we were on on calls kind of going through it. You would go through in a typical investor meeting before they picked the five companies that would um, present. And then, and the judges went through that. Even a lot of the judges mentioned, you know, we read about your business on paper and then to put the face of a founder next to that business is really interesting and and found it compelling I think it's a mixture of things, especially at this level. I think it's a lot about who we are and why we're doing this. Michael and I are so dedicated to building something much larger than ourselves. We know that access to financial services is a massive challenge and a massive opportunity. Um, And we really explained why it was so interesting and relevant to us. And, um, And then just explaining kind of our path. Or what we're going to do over the next couple of years of how we can reach millions and millions of people. So I think it was a mixture of just our personal passion and love of this topic, and then uh, a very thought out kind of plan for for how to make a huge company out of this. And I I, I was inspired by um, another podcast that you did. Andy was very honest about starting a company, and I think you know, I've done a lot of pitch competitions. There's a lot that goes into a pitch competition beforehand. Um, So I think it's made to seem very glamorous, but there's so much work that has to go in. I looked up all the judges, their relationship to FinTech, you know, other financial technology investments they made. Ashton's made quite a few. So I knew he knew the space. I knew some of the judges didn't know the space. And I only had two minutes minutes to Mm -hmm. pitch to them. And I really tried to make a two-minute pitch that, explained all the important things, but in a way that you could take in in two minutes and not be overwhelmed. Um, And I think that's key. It's, it's just extremely difficult to do. The shorter the pitch, it's much harder.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Two minutes is, I mean, usually it's like, okay, my elevator pitch is going to be five minutes. Never mind two. And then talk about the rest of the business. Now you went on to raise, you know, 2 million from the same investors plus others. Um, So what was, so what advice would you give to the founders that are raising, you know, capital? Um, And then what, you know, you have some pretty like impressive names that have backed you. Like what what access do you have to, to, do they actually help you with your business? Like, you know, do, can you like reach out to them and say, Hey, I've got an idea. What are your thoughts that are they giving you feedback on growing your business?
1: Yeah, definitely. And so I'll say, you know, sound ventures in general, it's Ashton, it's Guy, it's Effie. They're all amazing. And they're all really great at different things obviously Mark's built a huge billion dollar business knows how to scale a company. We also have some other amazing investors. We raised in New York, Boston, SF and LA. Um, we raised from underscore right here in Boston. We've raised from Navron in San Francisco, female founders fund in New York. So there were some other investors who came into the, to the following round. Um, I would say that it's a long game. A lot of the people who invested, I, I knew for years And they had tracked our progress and, you know, we were so young when we were starting the company in school. I think a lot of people, uh, kind of underestimated how big we actually wanted to make this. And so I just had kept in touch with a lot of people. And as things started to come together and we had a real kind of, um, business happening, you know, then everyone starts to come out of the woodwork and wants to invest. So, um, I I would say it's a long game and, and just meet people, build relationships you're investing in people. You work with these people so much. It's important that you get along. And I would say that's my relationship with all of them. I reach out whenever I need help with, with anything.
0: Well, just like kind of thinking about other you know, pieces of advice for, you know, whether they're students or, you know, entrepreneurs, regardless of age, what's uh, like one of the things that you did say was uh, starting a, starting a business uh, in college is uh, probably the best time to, to start one. Like what, mm-hmm. like what led you to say that?
1: Yeah. Uh, and I was only in school for maybe months or a year. Michael was in school for a couple years. So this is something Michael talks about a lot. Um, but starting a company in school, you're in a living laboratory. You, you don't have that much to lose. And so you have a lot of access to resources. A lot of people want to help you. And you can try things pretty much risk, risk-free. So when I wanted to do this, I actually reached out to a professor who had been studying a specific topic. Um, I had never taken a class in that industry. And I reached out and I just said, hey, can I do um, an independent study with you because you have this fascinating research? And he said, yes. And so my senior year, I did this independent study, which really gave me a lot of data into this industry. And I was able to validate a lot of um, just macroeconomic macroeconomic trends that I had been thinking about and um, wanted to validate for the business. So there's so much you can do while you're in school. And I didn't even go to like an entrepreneurship school and still managed to kind of use the resources around me.
0: Got it. And then you were part of Mass Challenge. How how do you think uh, like an accelerator like Mass Challenge helped you initially?
1: Yeah, Mass Challenge was great. Right as I graduated, we got into Mass Challenge. So it was kind of that next step for us. And it just allowed us to meet everyone in Boston, have access to resources. I think it's really good for young companies. It allowed us to talk to a lot of corporates and get feedback from potential customers really early to better define what and how we wanted to build. Um, and it just put a, yeah, a lot of connections at our fingertips right away.
0: One of the things that you've been a master of is getting PR and a lot of companies struggle with that. So you talked about, you know, early on, you know, New York times um, you know, you've were uh, Forbes 30 under 30 um, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and you were just you and your brother were on Cheddar to talk mm-hmm. about the company. So, how have you been so successful of, of garnering the attention of of, of media?
1: We do, we have we have had a lot of media, especially really early for a startup, um, for better or worse. And I think it's because um, from the beginning we really had a fresh perspective and spoke very candidly. So even, you know, I, I would speak at a lot of finance events and no one would really look like me and no one would sound like me. And I liked that. I kind of would give these candid answers that you couldn't give if you were a VP of Bank of America, because there's only a very, you know, thin line of what you can actually say publicly. And I think that's what's missing for fi- from finance. What I'm trying to do in finance is change people's relationship with money. In order to do that, you have to have a more human experience right now financial services doesn't, it's very mechanic, it's not human at all. And I think kind of the fresh perspective and candidness just around being human, understanding that decisions are hard, um, really made people kind of want to talk about the story. Um, And also, you know, we weren't the typical founding team per se. Um, Yeah, so just kind of a different different storyline and then people read something interesting, they pull something else out of it and that's how it's happened.
0: But let's also talk about like you know like one of the things that it seems very obvious about you is is hustle, you know, and people like Gary Vee talk about you know hustle, 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 right? It's almost yeah. like Vogue would say you know you hustle, but I think you actually do like that's something you like I, like I see you around Boston all the time, like you're you know raise money from West Coast, East Coast, like so <laughs> so so what does what the word like hustle mean and what, like how would you advise other you know founders yeah. to think the same way?
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. I think the word hustle is actually being debated in Silicon Valley right now. I'm not sure if I, how I feel about that word yet. I think it's kind of that, that quote about, you know, the harder you work, the more luck you have, whatever the, that idea of that quote is. Um, And, and going back to just being really open. It's not like I just, these things don't just happen. You, (laughs) you prepare for them. There's people who I meet, and someone I'll, I'll, I ran into a a really cool investor in in an airport pretty recently. Someone was like, How did that happen? It's like, Well, I knew who he was. I've been following him for a long time. I saw what he was interested in. I saw him in an airport, and I knew what I could say to say hi. Um, It's, if you, there's a lot of steps you can take to prepare and a lot of hard work that goes into making everything happen. And I think maybe it's even having a chip on your shoulder from, You know, me being a really young woman in an industry that is extremely different than me, where I always had to work a little harder just to be where normal people were at. And so naturally, I just kept that up and always outworked anyone else. And that increased kind of the luck factor um, of being in the right place at the right time, knowing who I should be talking to and, and, and meeting them.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I agree. Like, it's not like hustle. The word is, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean like how many hours or just like constant perspiration. It's about, you know, being, uh, you know, aware of what's going to push your business forward mm-hmm. and using that time wisely, uh, regardless of the number of hours spent or, you know, so, um, now what about, uh, you know, building a company at a relatively early age to where you are now, is there anything that you would have done differently kind of reflecting and looking back?
1: Yeah, this is, it's a tough question. I think the, um, not necessarily with the business, I think a lot of things happened in the right order. I wish I would have written down more as it was happening, almost recorded more about like the journey and the experience. Um, I feel like a lot of it, I just forgot. It's been years of hard work and a lot of it, I, I, you remember certain things, but I think like a traumatic experience, your brain only tends to remember certain things to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. And since startups are so traumatic, I feel like there's a lot of things I just don't even remember. Sure. And uh, I wish I would have just recorded more of it, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Now, what about, uh, you know, hiring people, managing, leading a company? Like, were those traits that just were natural? Is it something that, you know, has been a constant evolution for you?
1: Uh, a little bit of both. I would say a lot of people are fascinated by the way I lead the company, especially because almost every single Michael and I are the youngest people at the company right now. I assume eventually that'll change since we keep getting older (laughs) and people keep graduating. Um, but I've always had an interest in leading and I think naturally throughout my own experiences, I took on leadership roles. I was the editor in chief of my school newspaper for two years. And I remember that experience vividly because it was the first time I was managing people older than I was, who maybe thought they should have had that role, but I, uh, I was younger than them and managing them. Um, all throughout high school and college, I had started clubs and was the president of clubs. So a lot of, a lot of leading people was something I had done in smaller capacities. And so just kind of scaling that and evolving your own personal style. And I'm fascinated by humans and human behavior. So I read a lot of behavioral economics. And I think especially someone like me who isn't the typical CEO, I try to think about what I want my leadership to look like. I want to be really honest and candid, but I want to be respected at the same time. And I think that's something CEOs, no matter who they are, struggle with. And so that's something I strive to to accomplish.
0: What about like mentorship? Like who do you count on? Like who can you reach out to for different you know, challenges that you're having with your business?
1: Yeah, I I try to learn from everyone. And there was an interesting thing I read recently about how um, when people are getting recommendations, a lot of times they only list their bosses or their managers, but it speaks a lot to if you list someone who worked below you, who you managed. Um, and I think I try to learn from everyone, no matter what they do and who they are, even just talking to my Uber drivers and getting a new perspective. um, There are definitely investors and advisors who I go to. I learn a ton from Michael. We think so differently. It's unbelievable that we grew up in the same house. Our brains work totally different. (laughs) Um, But there's different people who solve different challenges for me. I would say there's just a lot of company growth and a lot of human growth that have happened in the last couple of years. And so there's different people I reach out to for different, um, for different challenges, but always surrounding yourself with, you know, just amazing people, but they might be at all different phases of life.
0: Sure. What's a typical day look like for you, you know, in terms of getting through the day and tackling everything you got to tackle.
1: Yeah. This is a funny question. I feel like, because I definitely do not have a typical day. Um, I potentially Have a typical week but like this week we kind of talked about like monday and tuesday i was in london opening the london stock exchange and talking about finance (laughs) tuesday uh, wednesday and thursday i was in new york city (laughs) on cheddar and having some meetings and then friday i'm in boston um definitely a lot of travel which changes every day and every week uh i would say typically though mondays are a lot of internal meetings at the company. I meet with all the teams, a lot of different employees. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, might have more outward facing meetings with investors or advisors or for sales. Um, And I do what I do because every day is so different. What helps me a lot is I break down each week into my priorities and give each a percentage. And I have that for the whole company to see so they know what I'm working on and they know what I'm prioritizing. So that might change depending on what's happening. Like, I might be spending 50% of my time on sales or, um, you know, or 50% of my time on hiring. It depends kind of what the priority is, but I'll break it down. It's usually something like a 40, 20, you know, 15, 15, It, it kind of breaks down into each. So definitely no typical day, but just prioritizing what has to happen that week.
0: That's great advice. Like I've heard, you know, obviously like structuring your day and everything, but creating percentages and sharing that with your team. I haven't heard that before.
1: Yeah, it helps because then if they want to meet about something, you can say, this is what I'm focused on right now. And, you know, it it helps clear your calendar.
0: Now you spoke at Inbound one year and one of the, you know, you were talking about all these, you know, different things that people need to be thinking about. And, uh, you know, one of the quotes you had was uh, being ready. If you wait until you are ready, you will be waiting for the rest of your life, which I thought was very powerful. And that's a great, great message. So what did you mean? Like, what does that mean?
1: Yeah. Something I say a lot. So when I was starting this company, everyone told me not to do it. Everyone said, you've never worked in financial services. You have no experience. You're in school. You have no time and you, you don't have money. In fact, I was in student debt, so I had negative money. Um, and everyone said, why don't you go work, you know, and then start this later. And I thought, I had just never been so compelled to do anything in my life. And I have had a lot of interests. I, am I, you know, I studied environmental science. I'm fascinated by a lot of things, but I had never been so compelled by anything else. Um, and I, I think that statement's just always resonated with me. If you wait until you're ready, you'll be waiting for the rest of your life. You can tell yourself every day, every month, every year, you know, next year, you'll have more money. Next year, you'll have more time. Next year, you'll have more experience. That's true, but you know, you can't wait forever. You can tell yourself that forever. Um, and I found that that theme helps with making a lot of decisions, especially in startups, when you have very few data points to make some pretty large decisions.
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith because, uh, you know, you just continue to prepare, continue to train if you're an athlete, right. Sometimes you just got to go for it.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly.
0: I assume you're growing the team at LearnLux as far as, you know, continuing to expand and grow.
1: Yeah, we're always growing, always looking for amazing people um, who want to build a large company around changing people's relationship with money.
0: Cool. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and for sharing all this great advice, your background story of of starting a great company and obviously all the uh, words of wisdom.
1: Of course. Thanks so much, Keith.